You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. I'm very pleased to welcome to our podcast, Michael White from Friedman White Architects. And Michael, I think that not only have you won our awards twice, but I think nearly everything you entered has also been awarded a high commendation. So you've been a fabulous supporter of the product. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Michael, if we could just take a little bit of a step back before we talk about your winning project and the ones you've completed in the past, if you could just talk to me a little bit about why was it that you chose architecture as a profession? What led you to that? For me, it was a sort of a felt like a natural kind of process. and It wasn't by influence so much in design by my parents, but I think what they exposed me to and, and their core values and so my mother's from Papua New Guinea originally and my father's Australian. And it's sort of having that kind of blend and I have some siblings who are half Japanese and half Australian with quite a blended and diverse background and um, have been fortunate to have travelled a bit. And father was a diplomat and mother worked for federal government assisting with immigration and I was sort of born in Darwin and then moved to Tasmania and sort of both the top end and bottom end of Australia. Um, <laughs> was quite interested in spaces generally, not in the kind of um, academic level, obviously, as a child growing up. It was just curious to explore spaces and being exposed to some really nice homes that were architect designed, although at the time I wasn't conscious of that. I think it had um, had its impact quite early or civic buildings. I remember being taken to Parliament House in Port Moresby in PNG and in, was in awe of its kind of scale and dynamic roof plane. And and then a friend's home was playing at weekends in Tasmania, which had sort of this unreal internal garden and courtyard experience and um, just found those moments quite amazing to be within and, and immersive. And Tasmania, as I'm sure you're aware, you have these locations where you have both mountain and sea view, mm-hmm. so relationships can be frames but between these topographies and, and seascape. And this, this was just, I think, looking back on it now, a, a very free life to be in as a child to explore the bush and um, being an 80s, 90s child to have a bit more freedom than our children do now to just set off at weekends and come home at the end and have yeah have, have really been exposed to that has kind of led me to where I am now and I went to Hobart College which its design recently picked up an enduring award I think in 2016 and it's brick and concrete and quite a daggy brown brick but um, I just remember it being kind of in love with the kind of real robust qualities about it. The spaces internally were light-filled and there were these sky bridges and that externally, uh, uh, the, I guess the dichotomy was that is so solid and unassuming and this is what really captivates Solana and my work as well as something that 
reveals itself that can be quite blank on appearance or you walk past it a couple of times and it unravels as you go through those spaces I think that's had a, a real impact on me as well. I also had a sort of natural proficiency for technical drawing and really enjoyed those type of subjects at high school, the kind of hand drawing or catting was in its early days and found it quite cathartic to <laughs> kind of just be working away on a hand drawing. Right. So, Michael, you obviously you grew up in, in Tasmania, well, from Darwin to Tasmania. And then did you feel because of what you were exposed to, just obviously through your own travel, that it, you weren't really inhibited? Sometimes I guess people feel, you know, they've, they've grown up in a small town or a small capital city. Did that sort of inform and impress on you just because you had that other exposure? I think so, yes. I think, and also being mixed race in, in a small regional town and always feeling a bit like an outsider but still connected with your mates. And this has always been this sort of tension in my mind about and how architecture can really kind of expose you to most wonderful things, you know, speaking formally and kind of in in writing and the visual arts and but also being connected to place. And so having... Yeah, I guess having that experience growing up and, and even being not limited to spatially the small region of, of Hobart at the time, there, my mind was going elsewhere and, you know, there were kind of summers in PNG which were completely different to the suburban beaches of um, southern Tasmania. Absolutely. And so when you were studying, did you do any travel after that? Yeah, after completing our Masters, I started a PhD through Monash University both the one and I went to RMIT and um, that's where we met. Yeah, we met at RMIT on the first day actually of orientation and we didn't quite really connect until three years later and then there was some, some great opportunities of being able to work together and it sort of clicked from there. Yeah, so travelling through based on the, the kind of research programs able to get to some great spaces in Europe and I think Copenhagen and Amsterdam and parts of Rotterdam really opened my eyes to more appropriate design responses to housing. The real kind of topics we're dealing with here in Australia and in those locations it wasn't all perfect so it was great to, to kind of hear from the the architects themselves about their own frustrations with policy and you know that they were giving it a really good go it's designing more appropriate housing. And where do you, I mean, do you feel that we're getting better at that? How, how do you feel we, on a global yes. scale, are going? <laughs> Absolutely. I feel that there are improvements being made and the more challenges we're faced with, like climate change and um, intensification around social and economic amenities is really important. And at least there are like-minded, there's a kind of wave of interest in designing more appropriate housing projects that are, that are mixed use and not solely residential. That yeah. There's a kind of intensification of diversity of programs as well. And I know lately I think there's some places that are trying to re-look at the forum, although not as elegantly as obviously in Italy they have it, but, you know, looking at that kind of space and then, you know, building around it with the, with the marketplace in the middle. How long were you yeah. overseas for, Michael? It wasn't too long. I mean, we had a, during our master's program, we were able to be in Mexico on exchange for sort of half a year. That was amazing. And then later on, we were probably another half a year or a bit shorter in, in Europe. And with but Mexico, were there any highlights there with some of those? 
Oh, I think I found um, many similarities to the structures in Papua New Guinea, perhaps due to climate in, in Mexico yes. and, um, and Central America uh, and dealing with the kind of prosaics of kind of passive design and how you can design outcomes that are quite minimal in their complexities around simplifying structures and doing the bare minimum that's required to achieve appropriate levels of cross-flow ventilation and, and access to natural light. And in, in PNG, the design of architecture is um, quite lo-fi. The other thing I was sort of thinking about was, I guess, what I've observed or learned through architects is that really this idea of constraint is something that whether it's material or the space or, you know, an environmental aspect is such a key focus you know, it's that sort of dealing with a situation and then how are you going to approach the solution? And I don't know whether that was what you were trying to say. And I think, it, well, it, yes, it was. And an example more recently is our Napier project um, where we, we were looking for opportunities that I guess the design response is quite prosaic and simple and it, it's sort of answering or trying to answer and respond to challenges that... Uh, repeated patterns around the, the projects that we work on, you know, access to light when it's um, hemmed in by buildings on the north and south of the site and how do you liberate those constraints of the site. And Napier did that using brick in a way that started to act as screens and for mitigation of solar heat, so that, um, breathable screens for cross-flow ventilation and privacy and doing many things that... We were able to see those working in Central America in Mexico. I mean, Napier is just such a beautifully designed, it's so elegant, but, you know, you've been able to use it not just for, you know, I guess the cladding aspect, but as you've mentioned, for all of those other um, embellishments that also have some practical mm. use as well. But um, if I could just go back a little bit, because one of your earlier projects was um, the North Melbourne townhouses. I think that's where you um, start. Is that Was that your first project together? That was our first project together, that's right. <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it was out of necessity as well. We sort of threw ourselves at that quite ambitious project quite early on to, to sort of try and build our own home. And really from there we were commissioned to do more works in the kind of housing sector. And would you recommend that as a way starting for young architects to go and do that sort of project <laughs> as their first thing? Or... Uh, yeah, I think with with a measured approach to dealing with risk exposure, I think we were, I mean, naivety brings with it fresh eyes and it brings uncluttered thought and looking back on it, there was a lot of risk we were exposed to. <laughs> you're right about, no, about things, but when, you, when you're young, you don't think anything's going to go wrong either. That's or, it, yeah. exactly. Um, and then you sort of went on to win through Hoddle House and that was an amazing texture that you chose for that masonry as well. And it, And I know that at the time it seemed like very logical, but we know that people saw that house and, and, and really wanted the brick that was associated with it to really create that sort of different shimmer. And then as it, as the day and, and the light changes over time, I'm seeing a couple of familiarities here with your use of masonry. Is that definitely one of your considerations? Yes, absolutely. I think that when we receive our design briefs, as we're all aware as architects and clients, there is a, a commercial constraint and what's the budget going to bring in to the um, discussion and both, well, all three projects we're speaking of had, had 
quite a tighter budget. So there was still there was still room for architecture and kind of embellishment where appropriate. But the bricks in Hoddle House and Napier are at Rise concrete brick and they're economical and which we love that we were able to use a face brick on you know commercial projects or with the example of Hoddle House a pretty tight budget the client they got a lot of lot of bang for their buck and then it's a question of well do we need to overcomplicate the appearance of the brick and well or what are the the subtle things that we can do to the brick that sort of elevate it, but not in a tinsy kind of overly done way. So with Hoddle House, it was just a standard stretch of bond and then applying the wet seal. And so that was really out of necessity as well to kind of seal the concrete because it's so porous mm-hmm. to mitigate water ingress. And the the outcome there was the velvety texture that, the, as you described, shifted with the play of light and was quite beautiful and with Napier it was taking their lighter version of the same brick um, the concrete brick and having it saw cut by the brick layers which exposed the aggregate within and so it was you know not picking one of the bricks that we knew had aggregate that was desirable when cut and it revealed these coppery and um, or if you think Australian bush, the sort of the tones of the bush and having the simple kind of lo-fi brick being saw cut, it had a beautiful swell pattern to it. And so peppering the sort of 30% of these saw cut bricks through the standard finish without kind of changing the relief or stepping in and out, it, it, it had a very subtle um, appearance of kind of mottled texture to it a bit chalky like as well and that's such a I mean it's a, a beautiful idea was that something that you thought of and and how did that go down with the bricklayer because sawing does take time it does and fortunately we were very we've been supported by that bright masonry over the years and they were offering to saw cut with us but it was decided because of the procurement process and the risk that the bricklayer would do it themselves so the the yeah. builder had committed themselves quite early on to doing it and finding a way, you know, collaboration with the builder is so important as well that they need to be open to these non-traditional methods or in a commercial project of, of that type, you need to have that collaboration with the trade. And it could have easily not have been the case if there was pushback by the builder, but I think we would have found another way of doing it or working with it. I think that Alana's very good at that in the kind of partnership is to kind of push and push hard with the builder and, and sort of I'm on the sidelines kind of in her ear. Still drawing? <laughs> Are you still t- drawing the intricacies of it all? Yeah, yeah, drawing it. And we have great support from our team. Um, we're all relatively young and trying to include the other team members as much as possible as well, Jan, Juliet and Natasha, and they were all part of the process and everyone sort of has their hand at each stage of the, of the project. And, um, yeah, I think we will continue to do that in some of our larger projects as where we can. We're working on some larger apartment buildings in, in Melbourne now, sort of at 20-storey levels with much more complexity in their program and shared common spaces and even in those we look to what we've done on the houses and how we can fold that into 
larger um, scale projects in the commercial sector and ways in really collaborating with the trade where it's appropriate and possible where the client supports us. And that might be kind of working with more handmade trades through the public spaces or thinking about the entry sequence and the things that you touch and feel along the way where you have a bit more um, freedom if supported by the client to work on those areas. So I don't think that a large, larger scale commercial project should preclude the opportunities to have some of those moments that we uh, are able to achieve in the one-off houses we get to work on. And you touched on it a little bit before, but can you just describe your use of screens? Again, we've seen sort of the hit and miss screens become not only like a design feature, but I think yours was more intentionally as a as a functional feature. Can you describe those a little bit? Yeah, I think I think the hit and miss brick um, has been used in a way that has become a bit of a, a stylistic thing. But for us, I think we tr- we try and approach the design challenges with a bit of a spatial intelligence in mind where it has a performance to it. So the screen on Napier Street, for example, provides both privacy to bedrooms in that below balustrade height where the bed might be positioned, there's privacy and we're maintaining a clarity, a clear window above that datum. And having an operable window behind the brickwork where you can slide it across and to open up um, ventilation to that room without precluding the clear view to the treeline streets or greater Fitzroy beyond above that datum. Um, that's where the, the brickwork was used in that fashion or if it's um, doors, we like to have screening that again provide privacy and ventilation with that site in particular being so constrained with its infill, it had to achieve light from both ends of the building and ventilation. So we essentially broke the single mass into two and had an internal open air courtyard or atrium. And so screens became the kind of breathable facades that also allowed for privacy. Mm, They were just, they're beautiful. Michael, when you were travelling, you said, earlier on that your sort of influence came from what you were exposed to. Was there any sort of architects along the way that you took a shining to that provided any inspiration or was it the projects and the buildings themselves? I think it wasn't a specific architect. I think there were architects in in different regions and there were sort of snippets of reasons why I liked those sorts of architects. There was Eduardo Suta de Mora's renovation of a, a monastery in Portugal, I remember quite fondly, Lana and I stayed in. And for that reason, we really loved the way in which it was so minimal in what his design response was, that there was a, the existing bones of the monastery served a purpose in its time for the monastic living. and yeah. uh, But then being converted into this hotel, he was able to do... The, most minimal to it, minimal amount of work to it that meant that you really were immersed in its history. And I think for that, you know, then it spoke a lot to us and resonated with us. And then more locally, it would be kind of a whole movement of works by Roy Grounds and Robin Boyd and those seminal Australian modernist works that clearly influence the work we're doing. Again, perhaps because they were approaching the challenges faced at that time with 
quite a minimal aesthetic that was able to achieve uh, answers to challenges that appeared so simple and, and beautiful and spoke to an Australian kind of sensibility of, of textures and we're finding in the commercial work we're doing now. It needs that humanising yes. kind of touch at ground plane particularly and sort of going back to what I was saying before about things that you touch and feel, particularly at ground plane, to humanise the pedestrian experience is really important to us in our work. And, I mean, you did mention a little bit just looking at the brick and exposing that aggregate, but could you just talk a little bit about, because you've used brick so much, just probably that the aesthetic of, of that texture? and Using the brick to create a texture for us, I think, more like a fabric or something that um, takes on a softer quality is something we're really intrigued by and something where, as, as time goes on, hopefully we're able to receive some larger budgets for the homes. And I think that there's having that commercial constraint is good also, yeah. like a, a, the, the budgetary constraint. I mean, that we're able to, to use the brick in a, in a way that elevates it from being the kind of the unitized simple face brick and having um, it appear more like a fabric, like the velvety qualities we speak of or the chalky finishes or perforated if it's dimpled or hit and miss and having depth to it is... It's something we love about using brick. It sort of can be highly constrained, you know, s- structurally, but those are good parameters and they can do quite amazing things as well by pushing with with a kind of, with a structural engineer that, and a client that would support the use of brick in a, in a structural way. My question always with architects is because understanding the process now, it's sometimes you realise at the start it was very different from what it ended up with. Was that sort of, was there a bit of that process with Napier Street or was it exactly what you presented to the client initially? That one changed by virtue of it changing hands, the the original owner. And it, well, it didn't change dramatically, but it was sold on. And the reality of being sold on to a new clients and and their values and their commercial requirements did mean that it changed a little bit but I think that the way in which we designed the building we were looking for an inherent flexibility that and I guess we do this with many of our projects is that things do change along the way and in the housing sector where they're needing to sell off plan or a certain percentage we needed to think about a facade that was flexible and the brick allowed us to do that and we've sort of achieved a facade that had shift sliding screens and solidity in the brickwork and there was a kind of a play on the abstraction of a grid and multiplications and sort of subdivision of the rhythms for the change of hands to the new client meant that the internal planning the spatial planning changed a little bit and there was consolidation of apartments uh, to two-bed apartments consolidated into a larger three-bed nice. family apartment and the facade was the veil of the foil to this that was enabling this kind of changes to occur behind and I don't think it's hopefully not too evident from the street that these changes were being made so from that point of view things changed somewhat over the design and documentation process. You mentioned a little bit before about your partnership with Alana and I, I mean I'm just curious you obviously spend a lot of time together how does that work from an architectural perspective you sort of talked she was a little bit more about pushing things how do you work together how do you complement each other 
I think, well, I think that's it. I think we're very complementary in that we support uh, each other's ideas and there's healthy debate. And I think you wouldn't have a sort of successful partnership without a bit of healthy debate and pushback on one another. But I think we feel that if we are able to talk it out and come to an agreement on in both kind of private life and professional life, then you're kind of getting places and getting good outcomes. And um, we try and expose our team to that kind of debate as well and our clients that we're, we're quite open and we don't sort of come to a design presentation with, you know, this is the way it's going to be. We like to uh, engender a bit of debate. And I think that comes from just our natural kind of dynamic. And Alana's sort of, she's very persuasive. And I think that's a good thing to have, particularly being female in the construction industry and kind of elevating it to be that role with these commercial builders. And, um, and I deliberately try and sort of stay head down, bum up on sort of uh, design and that's not to say she's not involved in design as well like I think we're both all well-rounded in those roles and we exposed ourselves quite early on in architecture our employers were sort of similar and we sort of role model based on smaller practices that are sort of all-rounders. And do you find it hard when talking about design to switch off I mean is this is it an ongoing yeah. conversation? It is It is very difficult, particularly for me. And uh, our daughter is the silencer at home. She is, It's great. She senses the, the shop talk, and <laughs> which I certainly need. And so from a very early age, she would have said, you know, don't, no, don't talk about buildings. <laughs> I think that was sort of about two, two years on. And even she can, she can feel it in just the tone of how you speak, um, even if the words are complex, she knows it's shop talk and, yeah. uh, and I think that's fantastic. So it's, um, yeah, but I think exposing the children also to, to design culture and, you know, not to say that we're kind of grooming them to be architects, but I think that having them exposed to design culture is, is great because of my own upbringing being exposed not to design particularly but to having um, great exposure to culture was a huge benefit to my profession as it is now. Yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more and um, children are wonderful levelers aren't they? <laughs> they always bring it, bring it <laughs> sure. to town to be a little bit about them but you know it always it sort of does create that um, conduit of what's really important. Michael, just for people that are thinking about the awards and young architects in particular, could you just describe what the Think Brick Awards have been like for yourselves? I think the Think Brick Awards for for us has been really great because the the design pedigree of the judging has been the best in Australia. And without having those people involved with yourself in the judging panel, we I'm not sure that we would be interested in applying for the awards and having that like-mindedness with those speaking the same kind or having the same aspirations or similar ideologies has been really important for us. And I think that's why we fundamentally want to be involved in the Think Brick Awards. It was, it was sort of something that Neil Durback said was so important when we started this and, and I didn't realise how important it was except for the fact that every single person comments on it, every single architect comments on it and just the, about the independence and it being a, 
you know, a, a very sort of hand-picked jury um, and it's it's always a delight for me, but I, I know how much it means to the architect. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think um, that kind of peer support as well is, is really important for emerging architects like ourselves. We've had great support by our peers and, and seeing some of those people in the judging panel as well, you know, you, you sort of gravitate towards where there's support. That's a great thing for, for young architects to be involved in, in a program such as this. And where do you see Brick going? I see it going in, in a great direction where there was once perhaps a, a bit of a dying trade where the, the average age of a brickie was quite uh, in the kind of old years. And, and, and now there's a real kind of energy behind the brick and where it's being in the application. We like to see ourselves using it far more on horizontal surfaces as much as wall surfaces and in and pushing boundaries a bit more and, and that if there's a familiarity behind the way it can be laid in more interesting ways by the trades, then there'll be a natural shift in gear for the architects to be, which you're seeing already by the likes of um, Derbak Lock Jaggers, as you're saying, or and and I think that for us to see those local examples mm-hmm. Is really supports us in our case to put it forward to clients and say, you know, this can be done and used in very creative ways. I know for me it's always, you know, I, I don't look at the awards entrance until we judge. So I always sort of, it's like opening Christmas presents and then just going, I didn't think this could be possible and it yeah. totally is. Michael, thank you so much. Firstly, from a perspective of joining in on the podcast, but also for everything you've done for the industry and for brick and masonry. We've really seen the impact and influence that you both have had, yourself and Alana. So I really want to say thank you very much for that. And it's been just an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Likewise, thank you for speaking with me. I really enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.